Monday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. Chris Henry is just finishing up work at the EAA's Air Venture outing in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, so he's unavailable today. I'm just getting over the flu, but we do have a very special episode for you. A few months ago, Chris and uh, EAA staff writer Megan Esau uh, managed to hold one of the final interviews with uh, an American hero, uh, Richard Gordon, Dick Gordon, of uh, the command module pilot of Apollo 12. Uh, Dick had an amazing life, and uh, he managed to uh, get some time uh, set aside to talk to Chris and to Megan about that wonderful life. So we're going to have that uh uh, the discussion right now. Uh, it's recorded on the phone, so the uh, audio isn't as nice as we'd like it to be, but it is one of uh, Dick Gordon's final uh, interviews, and it is fascinating. So here's uh, Chris, uh, Megan, and Captain Dick Gordon. You must be Chris. Th- that's <laughs> correct. Yes, sir. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I got you on my speakerphone also. Oh, well, this is perfect. I uh, uh, We really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us today. Um, no problem. You stay us. You got somebody here with you? I do. I'm here with Megan. She is our staff writer. And I knew you'd have a beautiful girl with you, you <laughs> Well, I sure do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you, you must be my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, so me and Megan will ask you the questions today. And... Uh, do you, you know, we, we won't keep you too long, maybe like 15, 20 minutes. Is that okay? It's a beautiful girl. you you got a half an hour. <laughs> well, very much so. You're, she's she's probably worth an hour, so. <laughs> well, well, let's not stretch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to let Megan ask you the first question here. She can have the first honors. Okay. Hi, Megan. Hi, Dick. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm pretty good. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to start off with some general questions, and then we'll get more specific into the mission itself. But when did you first decide that you wanted to become an astronaut? Uh, When they selected the Mercury Group in, uh, in, uh, what year was it, 1959, 58, 59. I think that was May of 59 that announcement came out. I was a young test pilot at Patuxent River. Wow, so were you part of the second group? Yes, I was, and failed of selection, which was my big regret. And I had I had to go to an aircraft carrier and spend nine months in Westpac before I got a chance to get back in in October of 63. Wow, so I saw that you flew uh, F-8 Crusaders, is that right? Uh, that was one of them. Uh, that, I, I always love the quote that uh, when you're out of fighters, or when you're out of F-8s, you're out of fighters. And uh, that's F-8's last gunfighter. That's right, that's right. And then I was the first project test pilot on the Phantom. Wow, Ooh. wow, that's cool. <laughs> so when you did get into NASA, what was your first impression of the space program? Oh, wow. <laughs> it, that's, it, that, that's an interesting question, huh? I'm not sure I had an impression. I, that's, Megan, that's startling. Uh, 
Hell, I was very familiar with the space program when I first started out. I knew all the Mercury guys professionally. And I'm not sure I can express that adequately. My impression of it was it was a... It was a thing to do, and the next step in my profession, I guess. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's an adequate answer. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. Moving on to the mission, was Apollo 12 as much fun as I've heard it was? Uh, Yeah, but you skipped Gemini 11. Oh, we can ask. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that too. Because you flew Gemini Uh, 11 with Frank. To your question about 12, was the answer was yes. (laughs) <laughs> Pete Conrad. Or Pete Conrad. That's right. That's right. Conrad. And what was he? What was he like as a as a commander? Well, he was a good friend. We were shipmates on the USS Ranger before either one of us got in the program. We're in the same squadron together. So he was a he was a long time friend, and uh, uh, they accused us of being like an old married couple. We could communicate <laughs> without speaking. <laughs> And it, it seems like he had a pretty good sense of humor. Is that right? Uh, yes, he did. He was a lot of fun. We talked to uh, we talked to Al Bean, and Al Bean told us that Pete said that if uh, if you can't be good, be colorful. <laughs> well, he was he was both. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us a little bit about Gemini. What was that like flying in the Gemini uh, spacecraft? Well, this is, it was totally different than Apollo. And of course, it was my first experience. I had. I had been in a backup crew on Gemini 8 with Pete. Uh, we backed up Neil Armstrong and uh, Dave Scott, and that was my first training cycle. And then once I got in the, into the loop, I never got out of it. But uh, after the after Gemini 8 flew, then Pete and I were assigned as prime on, on Gemini 11. We performed our uh, first so-called M equals one. It's simply a rendezvous with our target in the first orbit with the technique that was uh, later used in the, uh, in the lunar landing flights. It had two periods of EVA. The first one was agony, not very successful. And uh, let's see, we used the uh, Gina rocket that we had rendezvoused and docked with to uh, propel us to about 850 miles apogee, and it's the highest Earth orbit flight that still stands. Uh, it was a great view of the Earth. We were at 850 miles over Australia. We, we stayed in that orbit for two revs, two revolutions, and then we had to come back down because we were just nipping into the Van Allen radiation belt. So we could only stay there for two orbits. And then we came back to our normal 160 miles orbit. And let's see, what else did we do? We had a a tethered exercise with the Agena. Uh, We made the first automatic reentry. And that was three days worth of activity. That was it. So what what were your EVAs like? Yeah, how, how, how was that experience? Yeah, how you? did that feel to be out, out outside the spacecraft? Oh, uh, the view is pretty awesome. That's for sure. <laughs> Get outside the spacecraft, but we didn't know what the hell we were doing in EVA at that time. We were having it was a learning experience. It wasn't very successful. It was, we were out there, I guess you might say, floundering around with with no handholds, uh, no way to do useful work, and that that was one of the 
real problems that I had with uh, that first EVA. It was trying to, uh, well, I'll explain it this way. Can you tie your shoelace with one hand? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> well, that's, that, was, that was a test. I had to use one hand to keep myself in position without any, uh, any restraint system. And I required both hands to uh, attach the tether to the Agena, from the Agena to the to the Gemini spacecraft. So it was very frustrating. I had to cut it short because I, I simply ran out of gas energy, if you will. And uh, it was a pretty painful experience. We, from our failures, I guess the uh, the lesson is we learn from those, and we. Later on, in the subsequent EVA missions and, and, and to today, uh, we learned uh, that we have to have restraint systems of, of some kind. That was our learning experience with Gemini. The second EVA was pretty simple. It was just a stand-up EVA where we had two, an exercise of, uh, photographic exercise of uh, looking for black holes. And, uh, of course, the experiments were to be done at nighttime with an ultra-V camera. And uh, during the daylight passes, both Pete and I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel that everything you were doing on Gemini was a build-up in lessons for Apollo? Do you, is that how that sort of worked? Chris, if we hadn't had Gemini, we would have never been able to pull off Apollo. Everything, everything we needed to learn for Apollo, we did in Gemini. Uh, Long-duration flights, rendezvous, docking, uh, rendezvous in the first orbit. Everything we used in Apollo, we learned to do in Gemini. And without that program, we'd have never, we'd have never accomplished the lunar landing in, 19, in the 1960s. So do you look back, looking back, uh, I would assume that you're pretty proud of your involvement with Gemini as well. Yeah, that was a totally different kind of experience, a di different tasks. Uh, it was a, it was hurry up and get things done kind of thing. Cause we were <laughs> launching every two months, <laughs> not really learning from the previous flights because we were so intent upon our own that we we didn't communicate very well with each other. Because Gene Cernan had a bunch of trouble in his EVA on Gemini Nine. And from that, we should have learned, but, but it wasn't until uh, 11, after that, we started using restraint systems. So it was a learning, a learning experience. Now, moving into Apollo, you know, obviously the spacecraft are different. Uh, was the Apollo command module a lot more comfortable over the, the Gemini? Oh, yeah. In Gemini, we couldn't, we couldn't move out of the seats. We were stuck in it, <laughs> unless you were fortunate enough to do an EVA. <laughs> but, uh, wow. You're in the seats elbow to elbow, and, and you couldn't get out of them. Of course, in Apollo, we could get out of the, the couches and uh, move around in the spacecraft, lower equipment bay, under the couches. So we had, we had lots of room, relatively speaking. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to get to know somebody real well. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On your Apollo 12 mission, when Pete and Al went down to the LEM, how did you feel knowing that you were going to be by yourself? Lonely. <laughs> <laughs> I, always, I always tell people that if you, if you had known Pete and Al, you'd have been damn glad to be alone for a while. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, one of the questions I had was, did you guys actually listen to music up there? Did you have something to listen to? Oh, yeah. We took, uh, we recorded music, our own tape recorders of our own liking, and uh, then we we, uh, we had our little tape recorders which recorded music on. I had recorded a, a young uh, group that was playing at the Ramada, so-called Ramada Inn at the time, and... Uh, uh, their, their name was quite something. Don't ask me to spell it, but I'll say it. Frosting Slosh Randango. <laughs> wow. You, you spell it. <laughs> but anyway, I, I just liked their music. They were a little group of three, two guys and a gal that played at, uh, at night at the Ramada Inn, and I'd go in and listen to them. And, and uh, I asked them if I could record some, so I took it on a flight. Pete was a, a hillbilly fan. I call him hillbillies. <laughs> he was a big fan of Western music, which I enjoyed as well. And I forgot what else. We wouldn't let him play it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you also tell us about uh, the liftoff with the lightning strike? Well, something we hadn't trained for. <laughs> and uh, big surprise. It was kind of nasty weather. It was raining, but... All the reports were that there was no uh, potential lightning in the area, so they decided to go ahead and launch. There have been two launches in uh, two launches at the Cape that uh, experienced a lightning strike. One of them was an Atlas that ended up in pieces on the beach, and the other one was Apollo 12. Wow! So it was a surprise, and we 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 knew that that uh, the booster was functioning properly because we could tell from the trajectory and the forces that, that felt, you know, the booster was okay and it turned out to, that, that our feelings were correct and it was just a, a, a glitch with the uh, fuel cells in the command module. So we had momentarily lost power in the command module until the batteries took over which were online during launch, which was normal procedure, and they picked up the load, and we had to reset the fuel cells during the boost phase, and the only thing we had to recover from was realigning the, the inertial measuring unit platform uh, in orbit. And the only thing we lost from the whole thing was the quantity gauges on the uh, reaction control system. And if you remember your chemistry with Boyle's Law was is correct, PV equals RT, and the ground could tell from the pressure and temperatures what kind of quantities we had left. So we didn't really lose anything. And what we were concerned about, they weren't willing to let us go. They made a good decision. If the parachute recovery system had been uh, injured, <laughs> you might say, but uh, non-functional, we would have been just as dead from Earth orbit as we were from coming back to the moon, so they correctly decided that we should go. So that was, uh, of course, uh, when we talked We talked to uh, Al Bean, and he said that he always gets credit for the whole SCE to auxiliary, but... You know that really it was Pete Conrad that kept us cool that uh, that sort of saved the mission. Is that sort of how you see it too? Well, we all did our parts. Uh, Al Bean got the uh, he he got the fuel cells back in line. Pete, of course, didn't react. He could have aborted us. Uh, 
at any time if he thought we were we were not going in the right direction. And of course, I had the uh, the ability once we lost the IMU to give him give him angles and times and show the booster was uh, operating properly. And then I had to realign the platform once we got in orbit. So we all, we all did our part. Uh, during during that time to recover from it, and from that moment on, everything was normal. When you guys were landing the lunar module on the moon, you guys were almost spot on. So how did you guys work together to make that happen? Or did you even know that you were going to be so spot on? <laughs> Skill and cunning. <laughs> <laughs> well, we knew... It was an improvement in navigational techniques. We had known that Neil didn't land where he was supposed to, and uh, they added a, a system into the navigation system that they used Doppler to tie in the spacecraft's uh, lunar module position with the Earth from navigational landmarks from the command module. That's kind of complicated, but they improved the navigational techniques, so we, we knew what where we were and what we were doing, so it was, but but it was the first flight that had a precision landing, that was basically how it was known, precision landing, the techniques that we developed on Apollo 12 were, were those that were used in following flights, and it was really a requirement, because they landed, you know, Hadley Rill on 15, Taurus Littrell on 17, so we landed in some very exotic places other than the flat flat plane, and it was it was a required technique that that was necessary. And it wasn't us that did it did anything. It was <laughs> it was a combination of the ground and the ability to find out where the, the landing site was in relationship to the command module, which was that knowledge was transferred to the ground, and it's a whole combination of things. But it was a so-called first precision landing, and those techniques were utilized in the rest of the program. And so building off of that, part of your responsibility was to take pictures for future landing sites. Was there anything specific you were looking for? Well, yes. Uh, basically, a, a lot of targets of opportunity throughout throughout the flight, but specifically, Paul 13 was scheduled to land on an area called Farmaro. F-R-A-U-M-A-U-R-O. That helped. And we flew flew right over it, so we took took pictures of uh, of the landing site for for the next flight, which was 13, and those pictures were used to develop the landing site models for Apollo 14. Just out of curiosity, how... How reactive was the command module to fly? What was it like compared to flying something like a fighter? Uh, Chris, they're totally different Different things. You had different ways to control it. You could let the computer fly, tell, tell the uh, computer where you wanted to go, and it would take you there. Uh, flying it manually was, was exactly like the simulator told you it would be. And there was... Uh, it was totally different than an airplane because you had six degrees of freedom, which an airplane uh, doesn't have because it can't translate left and right and up and down like like the spacecraft can or forward and back. You had an airplane has three degrees of pitch, roll, and yaw, but it's a very stable machine because the automatic 
the system keeps it that way. So, I mean, we know how important the Apollo program was, but just in your own words, what can you say about its significance? Well, it's quite an achievement. It hasn't been done since 1972. That's true, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was uh, during the Cold War, which most young people don't even know what the hell that was. <laughs> it, it uh, well, it was a race, but let's put it this way, it was a, a different, two different societies in the Cold War. One was the Soviet Union, which no longer exists, and the United States, a, a, race, to the, a race to the moon. And uh, it was very significant in the 1960s that uh, we won. Think of it been the other way around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, looking back on it, you know, is, is it something that uh, stands out? I mean, obviously, that you're proud to have been part of? Oh, sure. Chris, <laughs> that, that, go, that goes without saying, but it's just uh, one event uh, in, in your in your lifetime, and I'd like to think there are there are other significant things in a person's life. Don't ask me what they are, because I probably couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it stands out as an, as an achievement, uh, one that you can look back on and, and you say that uh, I made a contribution, and that's all we can do. So going forward, what can these coming generations learn from the Apollo program and all of its achievements when we're going out and doing other types of space exploration? Oh, I think, I think this, Megan, that uh, if, if, if the people of the United States can join together in a, in, a, in a mission, we can probably accomplish anything that we desire. We have a fractured community these days, it seems, politically. It's very, very difficult to recognize. I'm not sure we can we could do today what we did back then, but uh, when I think about it even further, we, I'm sure we could, because uh, it was pretty pretty rudimentary in terms of techniques and uh, material and knowledge. Uh, we Today, we far surpass that, but it was quite an accomplishment in the 1960s. Can you tell us a little bit about the Corvettes? It's an automobile. <laughs> well, well, how did they? Uh, how did yours come into being? Uh, you know, with the custom paint and everything. Well, a uh, good friend of uh, ours at the uh, in Melbourne, Florida, Jim Rathman, had a Chevrolet Cadillac dealership, and uh, we were good friends. Ed Cole, who was president of, of uh, either Chevrolet or General Motors, I'm not sure, but they had a system called Brass Hat. So we could rent a car for a year, and uh, Corvettes were very popular at that time, and we decided to get them, and, and I forget how this came about. It was probably something Pete thought of. We all got the same one. Al Bean designed a, a paint scheme for them. They were all gold Corvettes with uh, Bean designed black trim on the back fender. They were all the same, except right on the side we had our positions in letters on it, like CDR for Commander, LMP for uh, Command Module Pilot, LMP for uh, uh, Moon Module Pilot, who were very well known around the Cape at that time. (laughs) (laughs) So um, tell us about what it means to come to Oshkosh this year and see everyone again. Do you guys stay in touch, or what's that like seeing everybody again? Oh, we all we we get together quite frequently. A lot of us do. We have uh, astronaut scholarship 
program, which we gather once or twice a year at the Cape. And it's a program where we raise funds, and we have about forty ten thousand dollars scholarships that we give every year. And there's an autograph show in Tucson that's called Space Fest. It's an autograph show that we get together. You got two phones? I do. Yeah. <laughs> you must be important. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Anyway, we see each other, uh, those of us that are still friends. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And uh, what do you guys talk about when you get back together? Anything particular? Yeah. Uh, and what's that? Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> we, I, I, I got to tell you, I've never met you, but I like you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Chris. Oh, we... we we talk about no things that people talk about, just normal kind of stuff. <laughs> well, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to talk with us today about all of this. Chris, Megan, I, I enjoyed it. I hope you had some fun chatting with me. So, Oh, definitely. Thank you so well, much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your service. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to hear previous episodes, check us out at the regular site, Apollo13minute.com, Apollo13minute.com, where you can find all the previous minutes and summaries. You can also find us on iTunes and Google Play. Just look for Apollo 13 Minute. If you'd like to uh, speak back to us, we're always available, of course, on Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute or on Facebook, Apollo 13 Minutes Mission Control. Uh, we will see you back here tomorrow with regular episodes. Thanks again for joining us here today. Uh, we'll be going under... I lost the signal in about 30 seconds, so we'll catch you tomorrow, Tuesday, on the Apollo 13 Minute.